Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Dr. Dominique Lazar was one of the first few people I reached out to when I decided to start the podcast. I wanted to interview Dominique because we both graduated from the Environmental Studies program at Eckerd College back in the day. Dominique graduated with a dual degree in Marine Science and Environmental Studies. And although we didn't interact much while in college, I really admired her and thought she was a kind person who was really passionate about the environment and was involved in several community efforts on campus. I wondered what her academic experiences were like, and I kind of wanted to compare notes. After college, Dominique went on to pursue a doctorate in marine biology and fisheries at the University of Miami. Her dissertation focused on the dynamics of invasive lionfish and the factors that helped lionfish become established in the Gulf of Mexico, the South Atlantic, and the Caribbean Sea. We had a really great conversation about lionfish. Well, it was mostly just Dominique teaching me about lionfish, which was absolutely fascinating. We also talked about her work as an associate research scientist at the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute in St. Petersburg, Florida. In this position, she leads a data management team that provides fisheries data to state and regional partners for stock assessments. Being able to know how many fish are in the sea and the types is important because it can help tell us the health of the ocean. Dominique tells us a little bit about what she's found so far in the data and the implications of that data, of their findings rather. Finally, we talk about her experiences as an adjunct professor at the University of South Florida. This is what is so amazing about Dominique. The value and commitment to community still continues. As an adjunct professor, she talks about how she guides her students who mostly work full-time and some come from economically distressed backgrounds and are putting everything they have to help them increase their chances for success. I'm so grateful for Dominique and for the story that she shared with me. It's funny how it took me over 15 years to initiate a conversation, but better late than never. That's what I also love about this podcast is it gives me an excuse to reach out to the people who I have admired and learn from their life stories. I hope you can see how amazing Dominique is. Well, thanks again for making time. I really appreciate it. It's been quite a journey for us since we graduated Eckerd together back in, I don't know, 2006. Oh my <laughs> God. So it's been a while, but there's been some progressions that have taken place. And we didn't get to interact much when we were in Eckerd because you were in the marine science program and you did do some environmental studies courses as well. So there was a little bit of an overlap, but I didn't get a chance to know you as much as I would have liked. So I'm using the podcast as an opportunity to do that now. <laughs> not in a creepy way, but <laughs> no, I'm not weird about yeah. just wait. <laughs> So I wanted to start off where I start off with most of my guests, and that is starting from experiences from your childhood that may have shaped your perceptions and your passion for the natural environment, in particular to your expertise, which is in marine sciences. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So growing up, my mom is a city girl through and through. She grew up in New York. 
Brooklyn, Queens, and is not wow. super into nature. Yeah. But my dad grew up in Haiti and he grew up just being in a natural environment for so much of his life. Yeah. My mom can't swim. My dad loves the ocean. So a lot of my exposure to the natural world came through just doing a ton of activities with my dad. Mm-hmm. So me and my brother and sister used to go on bike rides down the Delaware Water Gap as a family. So we'd bike from like near our hometown to another town for ice cream and back as kids. My dad would get big truck tire inner tubes and we'd wrap down or tube down the, the Delaware River. So I spent a lot of time as a kid just like getting dirty, playing in nature, usually mm-hmm. associated with family activities. And then in terms of marine science, my parents big into museums, zoos, aquariums, things like that. So I remember, I can't remember how old I was, but elementary school age going to the Camden Aquarium, which now when I think about it, it probably wasn't the best aquarium I've ever been to. But I remember going to a dolphin show and I'm slightly embarrassed to talk oh. about my love of dolphins. <laughs> Or love then. Now I've moved on to other marine species that I think are cooler. But sorry, I think like the dolphins or the other cute marine mammals, animals are sort of like a gateway. <laughs> it was my gateway drug. It got me into the marine sciences. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't stick with those. Not that it's bad to be a marine mammal person, but yeah, I've moved on to sharks and other fish species that I, I'm more interested in now. Yeah, but like. I'm a nerd. So I went to the library after going to the aquarium and I'm like, what career gets to work with dolphins? So I decided that I'm going to be a marine biologist. My parents were like, all right, go for it. So I found Eckerd with a great marine science program. And because I'm stubborn, you know, like I've stuck with the idea that I've had from a kid of being a, a marine biologist, even though my idea of a marine biologist, and now I consider myself more of a fisheries biologist has Mm -hmm. developed over time. So the more classes and schooling that I had, the more I kind of refined my idea of what in the marine environment I was most interested in. Yeah, And that went from liking the ideas of dolphins, whales, things like that, to wanting to work in fisheries. Yeah, I read the book Cod towards the end of undergrad and just hearing or reading the story of the collapse of this fishery and how it had an impact not only on the environmental world, but also on a group of stakeholders was super interesting to me. Yeah. So I like the applied nature of fisheries. So knowing that some of the work that I do is directly related to potentially helping someone in their life. So yeah, that's kind of my, my journey into marine science. That's a very cute journey. <laughs> so you mentioned that your interest in the marine sciences has sort of evolved over time. Could you give us a little bit more insight into how that happened? Right. So I think during undergrad at Eckerd, you have a a bunch of marine science courses that you have to take. And early on, intro to marine science class, it's a class of 70 people. So at a school Mm. like Eckerd, which is pretty small, it's crazy to have that big of a class. And everyone that, you know, like the first couple of days or weeks is talking about loving dolphins and whales and, you know, like things like that. And then over time, you start taking more and more intense classes where you're not just talking about the big charismatic megafauna, you're talking about ecosystems as a whole. So taking courses like marine ecology or physiology really made me start thinking about ecosystems more, ecology more. So I really thought for grad school, I was going to go more towards the idea, like 
go more towards like an ecological based degree. But after reading Cod, I, I thought, no, I really like the idea of fisheries. I like the idea of getting to do science, but making sure that the science that you do is related to having an impact on people. So wanting to move in some ways away from kind of theoretical science or the more sometimes academic interests that are associated with the natural sciences um, and make sure that the work that I did kind of tied my two degrees of marine science and environmental studies so that I was trying to use both parts of the, the learning or yeah. background that I had. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It provides a little bit more of an understanding on kind of your interest in the sciences, but also applying it towards or sustainable development in a way. Right. And so you've gone on to do your master's and your PhD. Just a PhD. I didn't actually get a master's first. So oh. I went straight into a PhD program. Okay. Yeah. A couple of years after undergrad. Right. So it's one of those programs where you're doing like master's level courses, right? And then... For the natural sciences, I guess it, it definitely varies by program. So at mm-hmm. University of Miami, you could either be accepted to the graduate program for a master's degree mm-hmm. or a PhD. So you could apply for the PhD program without having had a master's. It just meant that you spent more time in, in the classroom for the first couple of years, and maybe not delving directly into your research topic. So that's kind of where I was, which is both good and bad. So not having the experience of having your master's degree and having that focus probably slowed me down a little bit or it was a challenge that I had to get through. But you know, over time, I, I did make my way through it. But it definitely presented the issue of the world is my oyster. I had an advisor who was super supportive and said, do whatever you want. Whereas there are a lot of PhD programs or like when you're accepted into a lab, there's a specific project that you have to work on or you're building on your master's research and, and you're trying to answer an additional question or continue down a pathway that you started for yourself with your master's work. And that really wasn't the case for me. So a lot of the early parts of my PhD program was me trying to figure out what questions I wanted to answer and to figure out where within the fisheries realm I wanted to base my, my research. Okay. I just assumed that it was a master's through a PhD. So thank you for clarifying that. Wow, that's really intense. Then you just finished undergrad at Eckerd. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, I can't remember. Did you go directly into the PhD program at University of Miami? No, I took two years off. So right after I graduated, I stayed on at Eckerd, essentially. I was instructor for the Maritime Search and Rescue team. Right, right, right. So I spent two years doing that before starting graduate school. Okay. Having those academic experiences from Eckerd and then working also in Eckerd after graduating for two years, looking back at your academic experiences, what stood out for you the most? Yes. So I think most Eckerd folks would say mentoring if they enjoyed their Eckerd experience and, and really used the, like some of the, I don't want to say touches, but some of the things that the faculty have put in place to make sure that students succeed. So Beth Borries and Laura Wetzel were the two faculty members that I leaned on the most over the course of my Eckerd career. So Beth on the, from the environmental studies point of view, and then Laura Wetzel on the marine science side. So what was great about Dr. Wetzel is that she was a marine geologist. So our 
like career goals weren't necessarily aligned because I was more biology and she has a, a geology background. But we would just have these really great talks about, you know, like how would I possibly do all of the classes that I needed to for my two degrees for the honors program. So being in mind that I had to work my work study job and I also had a ton of volunteer hours that I was putting in with the search and rescue team when I was a student. So having her as a resource and like person that I could talk to to make sure that I could do all of the things that I thought I wanted to do and, and was trying to accomplish was really great. And then that mentoring continued when I went back to Eckerd as a faculty member. So she became kind of my faculty like year mentor and made sure that she checked in on me during the year that I was there, making sure that I was comfortable and finding my way while now being a faculty member instead of being a student and talking to me about the transition and how different it was from when I was a student to when I then became a faculty member. So it's definitely interesting, but mentoring the record is huge and definitely helped to make me feel more comfortable and better figure out what my next steps would be. Yeah. That's one of the things I really appreciated greatly at Eckerd was the mentoring program. I came to the U.S. for the first time to study environmental studies mm-hmm. and in a system, in a culture that I was completely unfamiliar with. Having a, my mentor, Alison Ormsby, too, and also Beth Voorhees, mm-hmm. to walk me through the curriculum as well as the requirements. And yes, how are you going to make time? Because I was also a minor in policy and I had like two work study jobs. I mean, there was a lot that I was trying to handle all at once. And I also planned to graduate a semester early because then I wanted to go to India to do an internship there. So I was cramming a lot. So yes, the mentorship was immensely helpful. What I'm curious to know is how do you go from being a student at Eckerd to being a faculty member? What did that feel like? It was surreal. It's both great and very weird all at the same time. So being one of the the kids on campus who was taking advantage of so many cool opportunities and experiences that we had available to us at Eckerd and trying to be a faculty member, that was that resource in the same way that faculty members were a resource for me. So I was only at Eckerd for a year as a faculty member, but I tried to connect with it you know, like at least a few of my students or to be available for any of the students that for whatever reason valued my opinion and my time um, in terms of trying to help guide them to their career path. So as a visiting professor, I didn't have a group of students that were assigned to me as mentees. So I took on some students as informal mentees. One of them graduated a couple of years ago, which totally freaks me out. Yeah. Because not only did I graduate, get a PhD, come back and teach. Now one of the students that I met as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed freshman has graduated, moved on. She developed her own scholarship at Eckerd. So she wow. is just a mover and a shaker in the marine science world on like in her own right. Yeah. So having even like a small part of helping shape someone else's future was super exciting for me to do while I was at Eckerd. But I think it was cool to be a faculty member that had also gone to Eckerd because you know a lot of the tricks, you know a lot of what's generally happening on campus, and you just have a better insight into the the culture of the students in the school. So I think in some ways it helped me to relate to students fairly well. It also presented issues because I look really young. 
So students would think that I was very close in age as them or not as experienced because they didn't necessarily think that I looked like I was a faculty member because I do present as a fairly young looking person. So that became a challenge of having to gain the respect that I feel I deserve as a faculty member um, without like riding the line of trying not to mandate respect, but to curate it through being a thoughtful professor who took their opinions into consideration, but then also set some boundaries in the classroom in terms of these are our learning goals. And let's try to get to those. And I'll engage you guys in discussion as much as possible. But sometimes we have to, to get down to work. Yeah, that's a very methodical approach. That's very thoughtful. I can see how when a teacher looks around your age, they're like, what do they know? They're look like... <laughs> Multiple times, especially during my time at Eckerd, less so now that I've adjunct at USF St. Petersburg, University of South Florida St. Petersburg. I'm also a couple of years older now. Not that I look much different, but at Eckerd, I had a lot of students challenging me directly on my age. So saying, what are you, like a couple of years older than me? What do you know? Like, I hadn't finished my PhD at that point, but I'm like, I've been through a PhD program. And you're a sophomore <laughs> in a college. They didn't pick me off the street to teach your class. Yeah. So how about we, you know, like focus on the material and, and move forward. But I think a lot of it was just a way for students to try to buck the system and get away with being disruptive for the, the sense of being disruptive. Yeah. But I don't know. That's interesting. I wonder if it came from a place of entitlement to challenge your authority or your credibility as a professor. But that's an interesting dynamic of also just trying to intimidate you, which is almost human nature at the same time, right? I think in part, it was something that would happen if a student didn't necessarily get the answer that they wanted. Mm. I've always been more than willing to extend deadlines to a certain extent to allow for people to make things up, yeah. to provide extra credit. But sometimes there's a line in the sand of, no, you didn't turn this in. I gave you extra time to get this done and you haven't done it. So you don't get the points. There's a consequence to your action. Yeah. And then the you know, like college student throwing a tantrum and then being, I don't know, somewhat disrespectful in some ways by challenging me in what I would consider an inappropriate way. Like I, As a faculty member, there are definitely times where there are instances dealing with students where I thought there's no way that I ever would have talked to my professor in this way. So I don't know. I mean, I can't prove why some of those interactions happened. You know, like male professors that I talked to didn't have similar issues to deal with. Non-minority faculty members never had that sort of issue. It could have been me. It could have been the way that I presented in class, trying to, like, if I were trying to be too cool. Maybe they thought that they could interact with me on more of a friend level or a peer level. So I'd try to set some boundaries early on as I'm the professor, you're the student. But I think in a place like Eckerd, things do get blurred because a lot of the faculty members allow you to call them by their first name. They are so open and willing to talk to you. And I try to do that as much as possible but had to rein it in a little bit as students weren't always taking me seriously or thought that they were interacting with me on a peer level when that couldn't be the case in some instances. Right. 
Oh man, what a difficult situation. So I'm just trying to remember some of the professors that I interacted with at Eckerd and even when I was at Brandeis. And yes, most of them were older. And I don't know, maybe I had an unconscious bias where if like you're older, therefore you're wiser. <laughs> and <laughs> I shouldn't challenge your authority. But I think it's also cultural is I wouldn't call my professors by their first name because I come from a culture where you respect people who are in authority and who are educators. So even though Ormsby would be like, yeah, you can totally call me Allison. I'm like, no, (laughs) Professor Ormsby. (laughs) It took me a long time to call Beth Borey's back. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's just like, okay, now I have my PhD and I'm 15 years older. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Wetzel still. Yeah. I had so much she's like you can call me Laura over years now I don't I don't know that I can yeah Yeah. and it's just out of respect for them as people right and for what they've achieved so yeah I say keep that level of respect so now you also teach at USF is it Southern or South Florida South Florida University of South Florida Florida. Petersburg so there's a campus campus and St. Pete Manatee campuses but I'm on the St. Petersburg right so what have you learned since the first time you were teaching at Eckerd versus now? How have you implemented some tips and tricks? The second time around has been interesting. So my teaching background is varied. So I'd say it started right after undergrad because I was the instructor for the search and rescue team at Eckerd. And even though those weren't, like I was teaching a skill, marine search, maritime search and rescue skills, it wasn't a particular class. I was making tests. I had training sessions for students doing practical applications of maritime search and rescue, teaching people how to drive a boat and crew on a boat to do different rescue activities. In my mind, it's still teaching. Then at the University of Miami, I worked with a shark lab and that group took middle school and high school students out on the water to tag sharks. So it was kind of my first intro into more outdoor education, but with more of an academic bent and less of a kind of skills-based learning that's related to maritime search and rescue. I did a fellowship during my PhD. It's a science made sensible scholar. So I taught in low-income middle school in South Miami for a year. So I worked with a classroom teacher and went in two to three days a week and Mm -hmm. provided lessons to sixth and seventh graders. Wow! So like all of that experience kind of led into me teaching at Eckerd and then making the transition from that to the college environment, teaching academic courses was a challenge, especially as I was trying to finish up my PhD. So now that I'm done with my PhD, I do have my normal day-to-day job, which has a ton of demands. I definitely feel like I have even more of an understanding of how to curate a course, of being given a little bit more freedom of feeling or taking maybe some ownership of the class more than I did when I was a faculty member at Eckerd. So I think in some senses, I might've been trying to recreate what I'd seen done at Eckerd as a faculty member um, instead of kind of making the courses my own, trying to make sure that I, I fit the box or that I deliver the material, not necessarily in the same way, but making sure that like based on what I'd seen, I made sure that I provided material to the students the way that it had traditionally been done. But now I think that I've 
gotten to the point where I feel confident enough in my skills to design or update a course to fit what I think the, the best objectives are. And luckily, um, I've been given that freedom with, especially the course that I've been teaching most often for the last few semesters, which is a biology senior seminar class. So when I took on the class, the syllabus, like you would read scientific literature and discuss it and critique it as a class. And then there was a, a big research paper project and I shifted things a little bit to try to get the students to get some of the things that I thought was missing when I took seminar classes at Eckerd as an undergrad. So thinking about career opportunities when you're done. So it's important to understand how to critique the literature to make sure that you can analyze and, and really dig into the literature and understand how to break down a paper and how to understand what's going on with different types of research in the biological field. But also, you're going to graduate, and what are you going to do with this degree that you've just worked on for four years? So I have the students do what I call a career portfolio, where they're doing a cover letter, resume, job search assignment, graduate mm. school assignments, practice um, cool. graduate personal statements. So providing them with more opportunities to think about their career after they finish with undergrad. Right. But it's also a really different experience from Eckerd because the populations are just very different. So at Eckerd, I think that a lot more, because it's a private institution, a lot of times students have the financial backing of their parents to really help them, not for everyone, but for a lot of the population to make it easier for them to do a lot of different things, to study abroad because they have the, the funds to do it to take on internships and things during the summer because they're not necessarily forced to work to make sure they can continue to afford to live and go to Eckerd. And the majority of my students at USF St. Pete are working. So they're in the working world. They're doing a full course load while holding down a job and sometimes having a family. So sometimes the populations are just very different because the priorities sometimes of the students are very different. The makeup of the students at Eckerd generally for the classes that I taught was college age 18 to 21, 22. Whereas at USF, I'd have a lot more adult learners and people who are coming back to finish a bachelor's degree after having a full career and partial career and trying to get additional education that they need to land the next job or start the next phase in their career. Yeah. So you need to lead with empathy. It sounds like a little bit more empathy. Generally. <laughs> yes. I'd, well, yes and no. So I think that the students who are coming from a background where they've had to fight for more of their opportunities generally are better at getting things done without needing a ton of extensions or additional help and handholding to a certain extent. All of my older students are generally the ones who get things in early, are ahead of the curve, they're emailing me or calling me to ask, why isn't the assignment posted? Or I've done this early. Is there anything else that I can do? What am I missing? I want to make sure that I'm doing everything that I need to. Whereas when you're an undergrad and college is the only thing that you have to worry about, you can be a little bit more free with your time and you might not have to be as focused and get your work done immediately because you also have to be a parent or get to a job that pays your bills. So just very different groups. I guess a more resilient group. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Yeah. 
I would say that, yeah, the community that I've dealt with more at USF, a lot of the students have more of a built-in resiliency, probably because of struggles or past experiences in their lives that have forced them to work that muscle more than some of the other students that I've worked with at Eckerd. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the brochures of Eckerd, it just looks like it's a vacation spot because it's not to say that we are challenged, but it's a nice campus. And yeah, it's a liberal arts private school. And yeah, so that comes with, like you said, some level of support, familial economic support, which definitely makes it easier for you to focus on your education. But it's great that you were able to provide that more holistic approach to working with your students at USF. I think that's something that I'm sure the students appreciate, especially because they may not have necessarily gotten that kind of mentorship earlier on or even in other courses on how to be more marketable to a real world with that degree that they're working on. So that's really helpful. Yeah, it's definitely been my goal. And I only taught at Eckerd for a year and I've been teaching at USF St. Pete for, I guess, three years now, two yeah. and a half years. And I, I keep in touch with students from both time periods, but I'm definitely more connected with a lot of the students that I've been working with at USF St. Pete especially because they were towards the end of their undergraduate academic careers, at least. So there's a lot of writing reference letters, a lot of emails and meetings talking to students who have just graduated about how to get their next job. Can I read over their graduate student, like their graduate personal statements? Do I have any advice for them for how to like get to that next step, trying to open doors for people where I have a a professional connection with someone that might help them get to that next step. So I try to make sure that I make myself available to do those things for my students. And it's been great to actually serve that role to make sure that I give that lending hand or that helping hand that someone also gave me. Yeah. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about this continuing theme of you being a nerd and also (laughs) somebody who's able to juggle a lot of things all at once because we're talking about you teaching at USF, but you also have a full-time job like you mentioned earlier on. But we'll start with your PhD research, which I think was really interesting around the impacts of lionfish. So... I'll ask you to explain what it is without giving your entire like dissertation <laughs> presentation all over again. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. So when I got to University of Miami, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do my research on, like I said. So I went to a talk like a year or so into my PhD program on lionfish, this new invasive fish that was invading the, the Caribbean they're worried about it coming back and impacting Florida and Gulf of Mexico. So hearing about this invasive fish from the Indo-Pacific that was having a negative impact on coral reefs in our region by eating a lot of small-bodied fishes was really interesting to me just from an ecological perspective. And then I've been taking all of these fisheries courses that were helping me to understand how to better estimate the number of fish that were out there, how you can use fishery dynamics principles to better understand how to control a population to a certain extent. I think the lionfish problem was a way for me to try to marry my ecological interests with fisheries 
works are trying to use fisheries principles to better understand what was going on with this invasive fish species, especially from the point of view of trying to um, hunt and kill them to bring their population numbers down. So my dissertation wasn't necessarily doing all of that, but I was trying to do something that was interdisciplinary, but really trying to look at the whole invasion process as a whole. So I started out doing some age and growth work to better understand lionfish reproductive capabilities. So lionfish are thought to reproduce year-round. So I was trying to use juvenile lionfish otoliths, so their ear bone, and you can use the ear bone to age the fish to try to determine whether or not lionfish were spawning year-round and the larvae were actually settling to reef environments throughout the year. If that's the case, they're not only spawning year-round, but their juveniles are settling and starting to grow year-round as well. So you constantly have lionfish that are being produced and then also starting to colonize reefs throughout the year. Mm. So having that information helped to parameterize a biophysical model. So I used this great connectivity modeling system developed by Claire Paris, and we used that to create a biophysical model that infected these virtual particles that we gave lionfish-like characteristics to. So we had these little blobs in the ocean act like lionfish. They'd settle at the right time. They'd sit in the right part of the water column. And we used the model to have lionfish spread from the first points that people started observing them during the invasion. So you could try to better understand how connected the population was or how lionfish were able to spread so quickly throughout the Caribbean, through the Gulf of Mexico, and then reinvading Florida over time. And then I transitioned from kind of theoretical work looking at the spread of lionfish and trying to understand the interconnectedness between nation states to looking at the problem of lionfish in Florida. So I did a case study with a commercial fisherman that was catching a lot of lionfish as by catching his traps. So trying to understand maybe how you could use that fishery to bring the lionfish population down. And then also looking at this new interaction with lionfish in deeper water traps and trying to better understand how they were impacting that fishery. And then also what their distribution was in deeper waters. And then lastly, I did a tank experiment looking at the interaction between lionfish and lobsters. Some of what I found from doing this case study with the lionfish that were being caught in large numbers in these lobster traps offshore that when the number of lionfish was high, the number of lobsters were low and vice versa. So doing a tank experiment with the two together to better understand what the dynamics were between the behavior between lionfish and lobsters to better understand if one was outcompeting the other for that space in the traps that's created in in deeper water habitats. So kind of pull all of that together to look for more of a global perspective of this is how lionfish is impacting this whole region. And then narrowing it down to this is how lionfish is impacting Florida and trying to connect some of the fisheries principles that I've learned to the dynamics of what was going on with lionfish in our local community. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So when you're looking at, well, from what I understand, the impact of the lionfish is on the health of the reefs, but also the health of the native fish populations in Florida. And then the impact that it has on commercial fisheries. Well, yeah. So I think one of the biggest issues is lionfish eat a ton. Um, I think they can eat up to two thirds their body weight in a day. 
So having lionfish eating a lot of small-bodied fishes is problematic because you might impact the fish that are available to both commercial and recreational fisheries in the future. So if the number, we're essentially adding an additional stressor to an already stressed ecosystem. We have fishing pressure, pollution, climate change, all of these, plastic pollution, all of these things that are impacting the population size of reef fish and other nearshore fish communities. So having lionfish be that extra stressor is damaging to the reef fish ecosystem to make sure that the fish species diversity is occurring in the right combinations. Just making sure that the reef fish complex is what it should be. So you have the right number of predators and prey from different guilds of fish uh, occurring without lionfish impacting one level of the food web or another. And also knowing that if lionfish are taking over the reef, so to speak, how is that going to impact adult populations in the future? Are we having lionfish eat too many of the juveniles and it's going to negatively impact the long-term survivorship? Mostly reef fish, but also nearshore fish species as well, because lionfish can spend time in a lot of different environments. So you think about them a lot of times as being reef associated, but they've also been found in estuarine water and a couple of miles up into riverine systems as well. So their impact can be very broad. Wow. They're very beautiful fish, but... They're beautiful, but I'm a big proponent of taking them out of the water and eating them instead of uh, taking some of our our native fish out of the water. So you have the ability to selectively eat lionfish instead of taking a grouper or a snapper, then I would do that because they're just as tasty. Yeah. Huh. Okay. I've never had lionfish, but mental note. So how has your research experience and the knowledge that you've gained from your research translated into the work that you do now at the Fisheries and Wildlife Research Institute? It's very different. So a lot of the work that I did for my PhD, you know, like was looking at the specific issue of lionfish. And so much of what I do now, it's species specific, but I work with a lot of different species. So I manage a team of people that are responsible for curating a lot of the data that my subsection takes in. So I work for the fisheries dependent monitoring group. And a lot of what we do is monitoring commercial and recreational fisheries throughout the state of Florida. So our responsibility is to go out and collect information on the commercial side from commercial fishermen to better understand how much fish they're catching what species they're catching, how often they're catching them, and really tracking the landings, the number of fish harvested by commercial folks. In a lot of ways, that can be made easier because there are so many regulations in place to better understand what's going on with kind of a smaller number of fishermen that are connected to the food service industry. So you can track a lot of their catch and better and really understand how many fish they're taking out of the water. And then on the other side, kind of the more difficult side is working with recreational anglers. So we have a bunch of field staff that go out to different intercept sites. So boat ramps, piers, marinas that will interview people that are coming in from a trip and asking them, do you mind if we take a look at your fish? We'll measure away, take odorless samples, other samples for other groups to better understand the fishing effort and the catch composition from recreational anglers. And one of the biggest issues that we have is that you can't survey everyone that's going out and recreationally fishing in Florida. 
commercial fishermen, you can do a census. You can understand what's going on with 100% of the population because they're all required to report in. And that's a very small population as compared to the many, many people who have boats or the many, many people who will fish from shore in the state of Florida. So it's just a really challenging problem of trying to get information about what people are taking from the ocean so that you have a better understanding of the impact of fishing on the native populations. And then our group takes that data and cleans it up as much as possible and then packages it and sends it to stock assessment analysts that will do the analysis to determine how healthy a stock is, how healthy a population of fish is. And then that information gets sent on to managers to make new regulations to determine what size limits are, what bag limits are, how many fish are allowed to bring in during a single trip, um, when a fishery needs to be closed down, different things like that. Mm. So instead of thinking about how you can take away one fish to make the ecosystem a lot more healthy, we're looking at how many fish are you taking out and what does that leave behind? Yeah. And so what are you finding in general are the trends of fisheries in Florida or the activity and the impact it's having? There's a lot of fishing. (laughs) There are some species that are very fast growing and the large amount of fishing pressure isn't necessarily harming those populations. Like you can fish a lot of species sustainably, allow for people to go out and catch them without there being this horrible negative cascade but there are a lot of fish species that are just very popular with anglers. So more management and more regulations need to be put in place to make sure that we can control the number of fish that are taken out because there's so much fishing pressure in Florida. So I think a lot of times the commercial side gets a bad rap because we think of commercial fishing as bringing in a ton of fish, which it is in the sense that the commercial fisheries are providing the fish that are sent to a lot of our restaurants. But there are a ton of people that are going out and fishing recreationally. You might think when you go out on your boat and you catch two snappers, it's just my two snapper. But when you have millions of people doing that every day, then those numbers start to really add up. So it's an interesting dynamic of depending on the species, sometimes the fishing pressure is really high, sometimes it's really low. Maybe the fish is really fast growing. So they replenish themselves more quickly and the fishing pressure isn't having as big of an impact. But it feels like one of the really cool things about my job, like I wanted to get more into fisheries and be connected to stock assessments to better understand what was going on with those populations. But doing stock assessments can sometimes be really rote. The information is changing, but you're doing a lot of modeling to better understand or to get to these final numbers that say this is how the the species is doing but working kind of on the front end where the data is coming in I feel like I'm always dealing with a different problem every day so it's it can be exciting to go into work and I don't have to do the, the same exact process all the time because there are so many different fish species that people are interested in there are requests for information about different fish species almost every day or new and interesting problems that we didn't think that we had to worry about. So there's a lot of variety in what I do, which can be interesting and definitely help keep me engaged. Yeah. So one of the things that you talked about earlier on is that when you were teaching, you looked younger. And so that was kind of a challenge where people were questioning your credibility, your authority. And 
now you're working in two different environments, one as an educator and one as a supervisor. So what are some of the things that you've done to kind of strengthen your leadership and expertise amongst your team and then within your institution? So I think one of the things that I've consciously done since joining FWC is to listen a lot. Mm -hmm. So I came into FWC with a lot of knowledge going to school for a long time, doing a lot of theoretical work to understand fisheries is really important, but applying some of that information and some of the tools that I used during graduate school to the real life situation of having to help provide data that helps manage stocks is difficult and isn't necessarily exactly the way it was in like classes that I took in graduate school. So I spent a lot of time talking to the people who have been here before me to make sure that I really have a good understanding of the landscape. And now that I'm a few years in, I definitely feel a lot more confident that I want to have an improved understanding of the history of a lot of the fisheries in Florida. I have an understanding of how management has changed. I have an understanding of how surveys change and how that impacts the data that we get in. And then also from a supervisory point of view, really listening to our staff that are on the front lines. So so many of the staff that collect the data that feeds into what my team does are working with fishermen day to day and listening to their concerns, listening to the trends and the things that they hear about what's happening with different fisheries is really important. Sometimes that anecdotal information will pay off during a workshop where we're talking about a particular species and I can point to information that I've gotten from people in the field, Um, making sure that those people feel valued because They don't necessarily get to do the data analysis part of the job. They're collecting the information on the front end and they don't always get to see what the end result is. So a lot of what I've tried to do, especially because our group, we all get together once a year at least to talk about things that have changed within our group and with the data that we're collecting. I've tried to make it a point to try to always link the data that they're collecting to the research that we're doing and to the data that we've put out, to the outputs that our group has. So I make sure that they see how valuable it is to collect high quality data, super accurate data, following all the protocols that sometimes can seem uh, cumbersome. (laughs) Yes, cumbersome to say the least. Making sure that you're asking questions in the same exact way. So making sure that you're doing everything possible to standardize surveys to make the data as high quality as possible, and then showing why it's important to get that data in. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from all of our staff that that helps to make what they're doing make more sense. And then it helps them to be able to explain it to stakeholders because they're the ones that are talking to stakeholders on a more regular basis. So making sure that you help make that connection. And I think just generally making yourself available to listen to your peers makes them feel more valued, makes them more like happy to continue doing their job. So a lot of what I've tried to do, in addition to my regular job tasks of just crunching numbers and preparing data, is to try to be a link between a lot of the leadership within our team and a lot of the field samplers that are going out and collecting that information so that we can all work together in the best way possible. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very uh, well-rounded approach, actually. (laughs) In that same vein, have you faced any questions to your authority or your credibility like you did when you were professor earlier on? Not as much. So it's been interesting at at FWC. When I first started, I took a research associate position. So it was kind of a 
a lower level position. And then I just got really lucky that a higher position that I was more qualified for opened up within six or so months of starting. And luckily I got that position. So my supervisor then became my direct report over the course of six months, which could have been a really awkward transition. But I think that I proved myself enough in the first six months that people recognized that I was willing to come in at a lower position, work my way up and really learn the systems. And then that helped to make that transition a little bit easier. So I think trying to be doing a really good job and showing that I have the skills helped give me the credibility that you don't necessarily have when you're a professor and you're saying, listen to me, what I say matters. Whereas I can just make a really good work product and people will see that. And then also it helps that I can be behind the wall of emails and phone calls where some like, people don't necessarily see my face and they can listen to what I'm saying and take my opinion as yeah. gospel for lack of a better <laughs> word. And then when they meet me, I definitely have had the experience of, oh, you're Tommy. Interesting. <laughs> So whatever that O is related to, I don't know. <laughs> but there are times where, you know, like I've had meetings where me and some of the older members of the staff are all sitting in a panel and I'm the person who's leading the discussion. And they assume that an older person in the room is Dominique who is supposed to be in charge. And then I have to say, no, no, that's me. Yeah. So kind of challenging people's first perceptions is probably the biggest issue that I deal with. So people not necessarily recognizing me as an authority just based on the way I look and having to redirect that attention or having people recognize that don't always judge a book by its cover helps to, once you get past that, I think things have generally been been pretty easy, but I think it's just a, a very different work environment because the outputs of my work are a lot easier for my coworkers to see in like a state fisheries situation as opposed to working with students. They don't necessarily see all of the behind the scenes or understand all of the work that goes into preparing a class. So it's harder sometimes, I think, for the students to see what the input is that leads to the lectures that they get or why you've created a course the way you have with different assignments and why the different tasks that you ask them to do can be important. Yeah. And it sounds like you take a very respectful approach as well, which I think if somebody already has preconceived ideas of who you are based on your name or without seeing you or after even seeing you, then I think you coming from a place of, I want to kind of hear what you're saying and I respect you as a person and let's try to work together and combine our datas. <laughs> I think that really helps kind of break down those misconceptions, really. Yeah. So as you're progressing in your career, and it's so nice to hear you talk about your journey from a professional and personal standpoint, because we went to the same school. And so it's just really nice to see that progression. And <laughs> it makes me happy. <laughs> and so now you're at this point where you've gathered many years of knowledge and wisdom and a PhD. Yay! <laughs> so what is your advice to other women of color who are looking to pursue a career in the marine sciences? I think what I try to stress the most, especially because so many of my students now come from underrepresented backgrounds. So not necessarily just for like, I guess my response isn't necessarily just geared towards 
women of color, but to my students in general, is to really build their network. Um, and I think being a woman of color helps students from underrepresented groups be more willing to come and talk to me because they know that I've gotten to the position that I have. So I've had to go through all the steps that they may want to go through. And seeing a person that looks like them sometimes allows them to be a little bit more open about some of the challenges and things that they're facing. And I think a lot of times underrepresented students don't have as many opportunities to do internships and things that can help make your resume shine and help bring you to the top of the pack, especially at the undergraduate level. So trying to encourage students to broaden their network because so much of getting jobs and getting to the next opportunity is because you know someone. So a lot of us can make it through to the next step just based on having really good grades, working really hard, putting together a fantastic application. But if you have things in your background, a lower GPA, you've had to work, so you can't take on internships and things that would make you a more well-rounded student, but you have that passion, you have that desire, you have the intellect to be able to get the job done. I think that developing a really strong network can help you. And then making sure that you ask for help when you need it is really important. So I make it clear to my students that I'm not willing to help just anyone. If you've fairly shown up for class and you don't turn in your assignments, I'm not going to put my name on the line for you. But if you're someone who's been working hard since day one, or you're someone who can show me that you've made some sort of progression from where you started to where you end up, then I'm going to be more than willing to try to help in the same way that other people have helped me. So I think building a network that can help sustain you is really important. And to not just rely on your network when you need things, but making sure that you're constantly checking in with the people that have been there for you over time or that could become a resource to you later in life so that they're always willing to be there for you to help link you with the people that can get you to your end goals. So understanding early on how much it can benefit you to have people that will advocate for you is hugely important. So trying to utilize that, I think, is is pretty key. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Some of the biggest professionals or environmentalists of color who I've spoken to who've worked in academia have shared some of their experiences of them being like first gen or they didn't necessarily know how to navigate through academia, whether it was becoming a professor or just getting up the ranks. And so it's really nice that you kind of help fill that gap for students from underrepresented communities, because it wouldn't be uncommon for them to come from a background where they're the first ones to go to college or that they don't necessarily have the familial or economic support that they need to help keep them focused and give them like a very clear direction of like, this is what you can do. This is based on my experiences, et cetera. So yes. So much of me being able to, to get to where I am is because other people were willing to help me. And I was that person who my parents didn't finish college. My mom, especially, she's a nurse, but understanding why I was putting myself through hell for grad school at times did not make sense to her. She's like, are you sure this is really what you want? So talking to students about how to navigate a situation where you're making sure that your family understands mm-hmm. why science is important, why your field is worthwhile to go into. And then knowing that people who come from backgrounds where no one else has finished college or 
you're the first one to do something or where you don't look like everybody else in the room can be so hard. So making sure that model what success can look like for people, I think helps them out. And then also making sure that anyone who comes from that sort of background is not only willing to like make themselves more successful, but also to make sure that they look back to reach up and pull the next person to be able to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's so critical. And thank you for, for doing that. It does make a huge difference at the end of the day. We're going to be reaching towards the end of our conversation here. And so we'll get into the lightning round here. And you just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. (laughs) The first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? I'm embarrassed to say it, but Tiger King. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I refuse to watch that show. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't. I mean... It's very disturbing. During the quarantine, I feel like so many people have watched it. I wasn't going to initially and then got hooked and I needed to see the, the craziness that ensued. But so many of the, like, because we're in quarantine, so much of my interaction with my friends is through group chats and virtual yeah. happy hours and things. So that's been a, a topic of conversation. So I've been getting line or Tiger King memes throughout the day for the last couple yeah. of weeks now. But I guess on a less maybe not less controversial, but another thing that I've been listening to, Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill. Mm. So I haven't read his book, but I've been listening to the podcast and it's made me want to, to get into the book more and kind of learn more about how the story about Harvey Weinstein really got broken open. And I don't know, it's been an interesting listen in terms of learning more about the reporting behind some of the, the revelations that came out around mm. Me Too and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any book within your profession or anything that you have read, heard, or watched related to your career? Yeah. I tend to unplug from marine science when I (laughs) try to enjoy life after hours. I mean, I read papers and things like that. So I try when I come home to just veg out on the worst things. So I watch a lot of bad TV, like Tiger King and yeah the circle on netflix (laughs) so i kind of think oh don't worry about it oh you actually did mention the one book cod oh cod that's yeah it's a pretty old book but it's a pretty interesting one in my mind in terms of understanding why fisheries can be important using one fishery in particular as a a case study all right so what's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work personal habits being willing to put the time in. So I think I'm always willing to put the time in in my personal life with my friends to make sure I develop those relationships and keep me strong. Mm-hmm. And then I put similar amounts of effort into my work. So maybe to my detriment at some points, putting a lot of time into yeah. my career in addition to my friendships, but just making sure that I work hard and always put the time in that I need to to get the job done. Yeah, that's a good one. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Be open to opportunities. I think early on, people told me, like, as you're looking for graduate schools and things, don't just have one idea of how you're going to accomplish your goal. Yeah. So being open to opportunities that might take you out of state, out of the country, jobs that might take you in a lot of different places, an internship that might not be exactly what you thought you wanted, but could open up a career path that you didn't even realize that you were interested in. 
So I'd yeah. say being open to all sorts of opportunities is really important and not just getting penned into one particular goal at the expense of other really cool opportunities that you might have missed. Yeah. And finally, what is your superpower? Probably the fact that I don't sleep very much. So my ability to get a lot of things done on minimal hours of sleep is one of the reasons I can be successful sometimes. So being able to capitalize on my insomnia yeah. is... <laughs> so how many hours on average per day do you get to sleep? I'm really lucky. Like if I sleep five or six hours a night, then I'm feeling great. Mm. But I often only sleep for three or four hours a night and keep on cruising. Wow. I never thought of it as a superpower, but the way you explained it totally qualifies. <laughs> I mean, it's more taking a fault and using it to my advantage. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> it, it sometimes helps me out. Yeah. You're a half glass full type of person. <laughs> I'm glad that I have come off this half glass full. <laughs> I feel like a lot of my friends would say more on the negative side. I, I worst case scenario everything. Yeah. I'm a warrior and an overthinker. So I think a lot of times I come off as thoughtful because I worry myself in circles about making sure that I'm checking all boxes. So yeah, I think that's a good quality because you want to make sure that you're you're being thoughtful, like you said. And I'd prefer that over somebody who just does things haphazardly and isn't putting into consideration other people's feelings or needs. So definitely try to. Keep worrying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So how can we follow you on your journey? Following me is difficult. So as a state employee, I don't have a very big footprint on social media. Yeah. Just because, I mean, in general, even before I was a state employee, I just not great at keeping all those yeah. things updated. LinkedIn is probably one of the easiest ways to contact me directly. Yeah. And I don't very much update my Facebook or Instagram account. So I guess on LinkedIn, Dominique Lazar, I'm there. Yeah. Do you have any articles published on ResearchGate? All of the, the work that I do is kind of gray literature at this point. So it's a lot of data workshop reports for mm. stock assessments. So unless you're in this field, it's probably not. And specifically working on stock assessments related to fisheries dependent data, it might yeah. not be as exciting for the crowd. Yeah. I think it's interesting, but anyways. Well, we'll put a link to the Research Institute and that way people can get more familiar with the type of work that you do. So is there anything else that you would like to add? I don't think so. I think I talked a little bit too much, so hopefully that... No, not at all. You told your story. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. I think it's like all the other guests that we've had. Each one is just so unique and it just opens up my world to another world, which I don't want to take that for granted. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired 
by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.